You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know featuring Jay Lang. So today I'm welcoming Andre Henry to the podcast. Andre, if I'm correct on this, you're a musician, a writer, a speaker, mm-hmm. and the creative force behind the Hope and Hard Pills community. So what else do you do, Andre? I think you some uh, yeah, I think I think you hear everything. I mean, you know, it's just a few things there, right? <laughs> now, I first learned about you when an article that you wrote went viral. What okay. was that article? Probably so all the white friends I couldn't keep. Is that the one you're talking about? That is the what okay. I'm talking about. Yeah, got it. So, so I came across your work then and was just like, wow, I was so mm. blown away by it. Tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and what's kind of brought you to this point where you're at today. Yeah. So I grew up in Atlanta, well, just outside Atlanta in a little suburb called Stone Mountain and have always kind of been passionate about justice issues and some of the, you know, freedom fighters that we revere today have, you know, those are some of my early heroes, civil rights leaders, you know, of course, like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and stuff. But I... And it's funny because I'm I'm writing about this now. I was kind of indoctrinated into a white American framework for viewing racial justice issues, race relations in the U.S. And mm. so even though I always respected people like Dr. King, I didn't think that there was much freedom fighting to do, honestly, you know, as mm. far as racism is concerned. I thought that maybe, of course, racism was an issue, but it was more like a personal individual thing. That some people were mean to black people or had, you know, anti-black thoughts. And so most of my life, I cared about those things, but was really more focused on making music and making like pop music, mm-hmm. love songs, things like that. But um, So what changed for you? Yeah, you know, something, something started to change when I moved to New York City after college. And um, when I was in New York, I had these experiences that really gave me the sense that people are suspicious of me or they mm. they expect that I am a criminal and they're just waiting to figure out what kind. I'll give I'll give a, a couple that are in different areas, like different spaces. Mm-hmm. So one is that I was applying for an apartment that I found on Craigslist. And at the time the rents in upper Manhattan were much cheaper. Like the further up you went in Manhattan, the rents were cheaper. And so I found a place in Harlem that was within my budget. I called the guy, we spoke on the phone and he seemed really excited to speak with me. He even offered to be my friend and, you know, talked about <laughs> how he doesn't meet many, many decent people was his language. I mean, he doesn't meet many decent oh. people. And we know that Harlem is a historically black neighborhood. Um, and so that would, that, that already would have been a red flag. But like I said, I had a very different lens on when he said that. So it didn't even, I didn't even think about the fact that he said that he didn't meet many decent people living in Harlem and mm-hmm. he offered to be my friend. And then when I finally came to view the apartment, all of that language changed. I saw his face drop when he saw me and he, all of that talk about meeting decent people and being excited to see me and possibly being a friend. That was gone. The only thing that had changed was that he saw me. Wow. I had another experience where I was in a car with my friends and we were driving home from one of my favorite places called the Sugar Bar. And uh, at the Sugar Bar, they have an amazing open mic night and we were all singers. And so we all went and we sang and we're on our way back home and we get to Harlem where I was living. I found another place in Harlem that would rent it. And the thing about Harlem, especially when I was living there, because I lived there from 2007 to 2014, is that it's heavily, there's a, there's a very, uh, large police presence there, or at least there was. There were only two places, two other places in Manhattan that were as occupied by the police when I lived there. That was Times Square and Ground Zero. So these places where there might be something that is deemed a terrorist attack. Right. And so we, we enter Harlem, there are police cars everywhere, there are police towers, you know, spotlights, helicopters, all that kind of thing. I almost said a friend of mine, but a, a more like a mentor of mine who uh, he's an activist in Serbia. He actually started the activist group that took down Slobodan Milosevic in the late 90s. Uh, He talks about how the police occupy certain neighborhoods in America with the same mentality as soldiers 
you know, marching in Fallujah. Brian mm-hmm. Stevenson also says this too, that a lot of times the police, they walk the streets as warriors instead of guardians. And I saw that kind of firsthand in my experience living in Harlem. So anyway, we, we enter Harlem and we get pulled over. And the officer doesn't really have a reason that he stated for pulling us over. You know, we weren't mm-hmm. speeding. We didn't run a traffic signal, anything like that. And this is what, you know, Michelle Alexander or uh, Paul Butler in their books, Chokehold and The New Jim Crow would talk at, you know, they, they've informed us. These are pretextual stops, right? The, mm-hmm. the police have certain superpowers that have been given to them through certain case law that allows them to stop you for any reason, you know, just because they find you suspicious. And this happens often to black and brown people. So this seems to have happened to my friend Chris while I'm in the car. Chris gets stopped and they start fishing for a reason to why they should be able to search the car. Well, I have back problems. And so I squirm a lot. There's some of the people that have never met me don't know, but like I'm always kind of like shifting, try to make myself comfortable. So the officer, you know, sees me stretch and he goes, you know, what are you doing back there? And I told him exactly what I just told you. I had back problems and I was just shifting to make myself comfortable. Well, then he accuses me of hiding a gun back there. Oh, Jesus. They make us all get out of the car. They search the car for weapons. I've had several experiences like this. I could keep going, you know, where someone doesn't, you know, rent rent an apartment to you after seeing you or someone decides that they're going to search the car for guns and weapons. And when you're just talking about it on the individual level, trying to discern whether or not this happened to you because you are black is very difficult to do if you're only Mm -hmm. talking about it individually, because what you're talking about is, does that officer consciously and knowingly harbor anti-black thoughts? And that's not how racism works. So in New York, I started having these kinds of experiences and Eric Garner was killed in New York City while I was living there. So that was one case in which, you know, this guy, he's selling loose cigarettes. He's choked by the police until he until he dies. And you can't help but wonder as a black person or have the sense that, you know, there's there's a connection there. Like I'm familiar with this experience. I know what it's like to be not obviously I'm alive. So to an extent, Mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm familiar with the overreaction of law enforcement. Right. I'm. I'm shifting right. just to make myself comfortable in the back because I all, I'm always shifting and I'm being accused of having a gun on me. Right? Another time I was also, I was almost arrested because I was standing off of the curb waiting for the light to change, which if anyone has ever been in Manhattan, you know, this is something that everybody does. There are millions of people passing through Manhattan. People do not wait right. on the curb for the light to change. Every First off, there's so many people walking on the sidewalk right. that to stand on the curb would actually be kind of standing in the way of traffic. So a lot of people mm-hmm. who are waiting across the street are standing right off the curb in the, in the crosswalk. And this officer looks at me standing in a crowd full of people and threatens to arrest me for standing off of the curb. So mm-hmm. I'm familiar with these occasions, these instances where the police seem to overreact to me. So to see the story of Eric Garner being choked to death for selling loose cigarettes, it resonates with me. Mm-hmm. Then I start hearing about systemic racism and how the things that I'm describing are not just things that I experience, <laughs> but, right, you know, and I know this because I've heard other people tell stories like this. I'm sorry. I just, another story came to me and I just want to share it because it, this was the third area that I was thinking of was one, one night I was, I was on 59th street, Columbus circle by central park. And I lived on 140th street and fifth. And when it gets kind of late, the trains start running funny. And so sometimes it's easier to catch a cab. When you're mm-hmm. a black man trying to catch a cab on the Upper West Side in Central Park, it's not always easy. People make a lot of assumptions about you. And that day, I caught a cab. Well, I tried to catch a cab, and uh, the guy stops, and he looks at me. He says, I'm not going to Brooklyn. <laughs> nice. <laughs> like, first off, why do you assume that I live in Brooklyn to begin with? Mm-hmm. So I get in the cab, and we're on our way to Harlem. And I think I something happened with my card, my debit card. Either it wasn't working or I'd lost it. I can't remember exactly. But the guy goes, I knew I shouldn't have brought you up here. Mm. So I start realizing, though, that it isn't just me. Not that I thought it was just me, but it isn't just a few individuals that occasionally experience this kind of treatment is what I'm saying. But that the, the instance when I talked about of seeing an apartment is that there is documentation that when realtors and brokers are showing properties, they show less properties to black people that when... There's another study from 2014 that when employers read resumes that, you know, the names like Jamal and Hakeem are less likely to be hired when they're compared to Jonathan and 
Benjamin, you know, and mm -hmm. even if even if the resumes are identical, you know, they're seeing like it's an instance of a much larger pattern. Right. So I started waking up through having those experiences, but then I was activated in 2016 after the death of Philando Castile, who was shot by a police officer after being stopped in another pretextual stop in front of his girlfriend and their four-year-old daughter. And I, again, like I'm familiar with this experience of being stopped just because, you know, the officer finds you suspicious in some way and then starts searching for reasons to, you know, justify pulling you over. Like, again, that you are already a criminal. They're just trying to figure out what kind, you know, what type so they can catalog you, mm -hmm. as Paul Butler says. And that was just kind of the final straw for me. It was experiencing those things in New York and then also the shooting, the mass shooting at Charleston, in Charleston, South Carolina, at Emmanuel American uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, that also yeah. was another point for me where I just went, I have to do something and I didn't know what. And then 2016, when Philando Castillo was killed. I said, this is the last straw. I have to invest my body into actually opposing racist progress. And so what has that looked like for you? It's taken many forms. You know, like the first thing that I started doing was going live on Facebook every day and just mm -hmm. trying to share my experiences and the types of stories that I just shared, you know, trying to tell people that this is real. I have experienced it myself. It's not you know, just media spin. We're not lying. We're not delusional. We're not gullible. You know, these things are true. I've seen them. And then I started, um, I started dragging a boulder around Los Angeles that was painted white and on it were written all of the, all of the injustices I could think of that had to do with racism. And the point was to show people that when I enter a room, when Black people enter a room as they go about their lives, that we have these things weighing on us, you know, weighing on our brains. Yeah. The names of those who have been killed by the police, the the structure of our society, these realities of white supremacy that kind of work together in a system to put obstacles in the way of Black people. And um, I did that for a few months and I'd walk around singing and there were some other, there were other, you know, like these dramatic symbolic actions that I took. I've since then also been like traveling and speaking, you know, at different universities or different art events or sometimes churches or wherever will have me really. Um, mm -hmm. And then now uh, most, most recently, you know, I've, I've been writing a lot and started an email list called Hope and Heart Pills, where I'm sending out insight about not just education on racism, but how societies change and how ordinary people can work together to change their societies. That's one journey that you know, also started after the death of Philando Castile was one thing that I heard people saying was that there's nothing we could do about racism. Mm. And I think that has something to do also with that misconception that racism is an individual disposition of people's hearts. Um, right. And people assume like you can't do anything about the heart, at least at least evangelical Christians. And those are a lot of the people I was in conversation and community with at the time thought that, you know, because <laughs> um, even if that were the case, that it were just individual, like there would still be something we could do about it. But that was their framework. And I initially was just like, well, have you guys forgotten that like 50 or 60 years ago, like wow. some of us wouldn't even be talking to each other. We wouldn't be sitting in integrated restaurants or attending integrated schools or churches and stuff like that. So what right. was obvious to me was that something has been done about racism. Not enough has been done, but something has been. There's been some kind of racial progress. And if we, if it's been done before, then it can be done again. And so it sent me on a mm. journey to learn about how social movements, people movements can actually pursue and achieve racial progress and social progress, but in our case, racial progress, and so that's been something that I'm trying to share every weekend with people through the email list. That is really interesting. Um, so then the Hope and Hard Pills community really came in 2016. Or when did you start that? Oh, well, we started the list late in 2018. So it's really new. Okay. The, okay. the email list and the community that's growing from it. it. Well, it's interesting because there's been so much building up to this because along the way... Right. Like people, people helped me carry that rock. And uh, one of my neighbors was killed by the police. And I started a vigil in his honor that attracted a bunch of people from around the San Gabriel Valley. And, you know, so people have been kind of tracking along with me on this journey for a while. And so a couple of years ago, it's like 2017 is when I, I really 
buckled down. I already started reading about social movements and social movement theory, social change, but I really buckled down on a, on a, a large project to start, go back and find who are Martin Luther King Jr.'s influences. Who are the thinkers that mm-hmm. helped him to come to the conclusions that he came to? And so I went back to those and then read like in some type of chronological order, some type of historical order from Thoreau to present day, the tradition of nonviolent struggle. And there were other questions I wanted to know about. Like, we know that in South Africa that there was this overt racial apartheid and that ended. So I wanted to know about that. And the other question that I wanted to know about was how how was Hitler able to pull off what he did with the Nazi party in Germany? Because that's also an instance of social change, just not the type of social change that we want. And right. so I started that pro- that process. And because I've been so active online, all these people have kind of been tracking with me as I, as I do that. You know, I went to Harvard for this class on leading nonviolent social movements. And the people that have been following me in that way, they raised the money for me to do it. It was actually someone... I I just posted it online. It was like, oh, I'd love to go to this one day. And one of my friends said, oh, no, we're sending you. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> you know, And so these people who have been, you know, with me on this journey since I started carrying the rock, they paid for me yeah. to go. And I sat with, you know, Serge Popovich, who I mentioned earlier. He started the activist mm-hmm. group that took down Slobodan Milosevic and Douglas Adam, who started the Nestle boycott and uh, Slobodan Dinovich, who also works with Serge. And the funny thing is, in my reading on nonviolence, I read Serge's book. And so that was one of my favorites and found out that he was teaching the class after they re- they raised the money for me. And anyway, I say all that to say that there have been people with me along on this this journey, this whole way. And so when I started Hope and Hard Pills, it was like, we've been waiting for what you were going to do with all of this. And um, yeah, also me being able to share with them, like they paid for me to go to that Harvard class. And I took that not just as a gift for myself, but as an investment of theirs, that if they Mm. send me to this course and then they will reap the benefit by learning whatever I glean from it. And so that's really what I'm doing with Hope and Hard Pills is kind of giving back to the people who have invested their time, their energy, their affirmation, their kind words, their time, you know, with coming to the vigil that we did for my my slain neighbor and and their money, obviously, sending me to Harvard, is trying to give that back to them. Wow. So what is your dream for Hope and Hard Pills? What do you envision it becoming at this point? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I'm I'm very open to the future in some ways. I try to have I try to have a humility about the future and what's going to happen. But what I really dream of doing is being a part of seeing a new human rights movement in America, something that is like the civil rights movement in that it is national, it's broad-based, it's compelling, it mobilizes a lot of people, and that it actually brings about some type of anti-racist progress, hopefully the kind of anti-racist progress that we need, which is large and sweeping and, you know, revolutionary in some ways. And I want Hope and Hard Pills to be a part of that. And so my hope is that we get a lot of people into our community that care about racial justice, but feel like they just don't really know what to do with that passion. And they want to be a part of social change, but the process of how societies change is kind of mystified for them. I want for mm-hmm. us to get people coming through that are that are gaining insight on how they as an ordinary person have a role to play and how they can work together with other ordinary people to pursue real change. And so ideally we would get them from that sign up that sign up form uh, for the email list. So for people who are listening, who are on mm-hmm. that fence that you're talking mm-hmm. about, in a sense, who want to get involved, but feel discouraged for whatever reason, yeah. they're not really sure what direction to go in, mm-hmm. you have a tangible way that they can get involved. Yeah, for sure. So I've been asking this question as well of different activists that I've been talking to because Hope and Hard Pills is doing a podcast soon. And so uh, we've interviewed Serja. We've interviewed Michael White, who's one of the co-founders of Occupy Wall Street. We've interviewed, you know, so many different people. And one of the questions that I asked them is, what about the people who don't want to become community organizers? And 
the reason why I ask that question is because partly, well, first off, I don't want to be a community organizer. <laughs> you know, like I want to be a part of social progress, but I don't want to like start a whole new career and like that be the only thing that I do and like start working for, you know, or start my own nonprofit where that's the kind of thing that I'm doing and knocking on, you know, knocking door to door necessarily. Although we need people to do that, but that's not right. the kind of work that I'm passionate about. And I feel like there are a lot of people like me who say, I want to be a part, you know, but I'm not really like the, you know, boots on the ground politics kind of person. The consensus that I'm hearing or a theme that's ari arising as I ask that question to many different people is to, if you don't want to lead the movement, then be a follower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is so, you know, which you never hear people say that very often, but it, it that is the, the advice that they're giving is, you know, um, so if you feel like you want to be a part, but you're not really sure what to do, then find a good organization or some thought leaders, some people who are leading the way and play a supportive role in the movement that is being built. Right? And one way that people can do that is by volunteering. You know, there are all kinds of organizations, you know, Black Lives Matter or ACLU or Equal Justice Initiative, races. There's so many that could benefit from someone who can answer phones or screen emails or bring food to a, a gathering or something, you know. So join on, join onto a mailing list, you know, I mean, obviously a Open Heart Pills is one of those two. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> where, where, you know, join onto a mailing list and see if there's anything that you could help them do. This is a bit of like social movement theory, but it's it's helpful to know that mm -hmm. one thing that we need as people in order to change our society is capacity. We need power. And one ways, one form of power is literally just having people with skills and knowledge, with time, with resources, with energy that they can use, all that kind of thing. All of those things are resources and that builds the capacity of the movement. And so if mm -hmm. all you're doing is sent, helping screen emails or helping to answer phones or you're a graphic designer and you can make, you know, uh, digital graphics or something like that, all of that is building the capacity of the anti-racist movement that has to happen. So volunteering is obviously one, uh, donating money you know, is, is obviously one. And that's one that we're really familiar with. And I know that sometimes mm -hmm. people are like, oh man, you know, these organizations are just asking for money all the time. But it's very true that like, in order to create change, you have to have resources. And a right. lot of times there's some people who even believe that change only happens by mobilizing resources. And this also gets me into the terrain or the point rather of talking about how in order for there to be change, especially widespread change, it has to come through institutions. Power is expressed in our society through a bunch of different institutions, through the media, through the educational system, through the law enforcement and military and the bureaucracy in society. All of these, it's all of us people participating in those institutions that maintain and build the status quo. And so in order to change the status quo, we also have to work through our own indigenous, strong, independent, democratic institutions. And that's partly what we're doing when we partner together, whether it's, you know, on a more grassroots level or whether we institutionalize something like the ACLU. And so Hope and Heart Pills, I think, is, a, is in some way an institution we're we're pretty informal <laughs> um because we're we're a scrappy bunch of people that all have lives outside of fighting racism and would like to continue having lives outside of fighting racism right <laughs> but, <laughs> but donate but we do give a lot of our time into doing that and so you know that's partly why i thought it was important you know that i have people that help me with administrative things i help people that help me with uh social media stuff with you know creating some of the graphics and stuff that i post so those who are volunteering with us, they're participating directly in the work. They've already gone from being a passive supporter of anti-racism work to being an active supporter of anti-racism work because they're doing something. And those people mm -hmm. who are donating to us on Patreon, they've also moved into the active space because, first off, they are they are directly contributing to the capacity of this movement to do what it does. And not only that, like they are enabling those people that we pay at Hope and Heart Pills to do their work. So, yeah. you know, it's all of those things together. I mean, obviously, the other things that, that people can do are, you know, the things that they can do in their own lives, which are like, you know, like it doesn't take anything for you to host like a, a viewing of a documentary that's important. Right. And people can pop right. like and they can bring snacks and 
you can converse about it after or to make a habit if you're on social media a lot to say, well, I'm going to amplify some some voices of color, right? Like, so when you see something that's written by a person of color or a black person, you know, especially if it has to do with anti-racism or something, retweet it, you know, make a list of folks that people should follow and just like, Make a habit of retweeting those people and amplifying good messages. Like there, there are all kinds of things that people can do and it all counts. Yeah. One of the things that has resonated with me very deeply in your work and also Serge's. So mm -hmm. in Serge's book, when he talks, he talks about, you know, how important it is that the everyday individual understand the power that they have and yes. the difference that they can make. Yes. And I think it's interesting because, you know, we live in this crazy time with social media and mm -hmm. we tend to get taken by people who are big names and who are famous. And I'm mm -hmm. just curious what what that might do to people in terms of activating them or yeah. making them almost feel like they can't do as much if they don't have a big platform. You know, right. I'll hear that a lot from people who say, oh, you know, I only have a few followers and I only this and I only that. And the thing that I say to them is the most important thing you can do is your internal work. That's number mm -hmm. one. And mm -hmm. then if you can touch the lives of the people around you. Yes. And if we thought of it in terms of every individual doing just this seemingly small thing, it mm -hmm. could make such a huge, huge shift. Yes, absolutely. And the thing that we're talking about is like people don't realize and I didn't realize this either. And this is partly why, you know, I'm kind of like evangelizing about it. <laughs> trying to tell yeah. everybody. Trying to tell everybody people, we are so powerful, you know? And the thing is that what people usually do is because I'm the one delivering the message, they go, oh, Andre, you're so great. And I'm like, no, what I'm trying to tell you is <laughs> that right? it's, it's not about even like me building this thing. It's about us working together. And so to kind of unpack that some is like, okay, so you've read Serge's book and he really draws from Gene Sharp a lot. And um, basically the idea that obedience is at the heart of political power, is what Gene Sharp says. Mm -hmm. And he continues and says, by themselves, rulers cannot enforce repressive laws and direct traffic and keep trains running on time and keep markets supplied with food and milk cows and make postage stamps all at the same time. So, Amen. and that's how we think of power. We think of power as though Donald Trump himself is like right? holding all of the power in America <laughs> And and we can't do anything because he's the president. But really, mm -hmm. what Gene Sharp is saying is that if we that we are providing that power to the rulers through the institutions that we are participating in, the organizations that we're participating in. And if we were to withdraw those powers, then the people that we think are responsible for the status quo wouldn't be able to do the things that they do. For instance, like we're talking, like if we're talking about the border situation and we're saying, listen, we have concentration camps on the border, you know, and we're locking children up and they're being abused and some of them are dying at this point and we want to do something and we feel powerless because we think that, you know, whoever the attorney general is, has all the power to do that. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the person that we think has the power, the one person we think has the power is actually using the obedience of all of the people who are willing to torture children, to lock them up in cages. If you had a bunch of people that were unwilling to do that, then it couldn't happen, right? Exactly. People who yeah. were not willing to consent to that kind of thing. And a huge part of what we have to do in order to change the world is help people who feel some kind of obligation to the status quo realize that they actually don't, that they don't have to, you know, you don't. Okay. So this person says, if someone leaves water out for migrants, then they're going to go to jail. Well, not if no one's willing to arrest them. Mm. You know? <laughs> right. You know, that, that person's not going to jail if no one's willing to enforce that law. Right. And yeah. that's just one simple example, you know, but, but imagine, and this was like, I wrote a whole, I wrote a whole article about this, I think a couple of years ago. 
when Maxine Waters said that we should picket the administration. Whenever we see, see them somewhere, we should harass them, follow them around, make a scene. And I understand why she said that. It got me thinking about one method of nonviolent action, which is called a social boycott. And <laughs> one example I thought was, okay, like, let's say that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is ordering cable, you know, for her house or whatever. Well, mm-hmm. your part in the movement, if you're the cable, if you're the cable guy that gets that call, is that you, you go and you come back and you tell your boss, listen, I looked for that address. It doesn't exist. I can't find it anywhere. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right. And if everybody kind of plays their role in the movement in that way, what you're doing is you're removing the powers that you provide to the status quo away from it. So what powers are, are being used in order to maintain the border situation? Well, you have the skills and knowledge of the people who are, of the the officers that are, you know, catching people, putting them in cages, all the skills and knowledge that they use to operate equipment, to process names if they're doing that, all that kind of stuff. Skills and knowledge, they're they're providing that to the status quo. The material resources, the actual trucks and the actual prisons and all that kind of stuff. So one way to look at this would be like, who are the who are the companies that are providing the materials to, to build these places or to keep them running or whatever supplies. And we boycott those places, right? That's one way that you can remove mm-hmm. those powers. Or those companies could say, we're not going to provide materials to be used to, you know, violate people's human rights or something like that. It's another way. And you can go down the list of what are the political powers that we have that are being appropriated for injustice. And a lot of people don't understand mm. this idea of power. And I didn't either. And now that I have it, I just want everyone to know. Yeah, that's interesting because my question was going to be, what would you like people to understand about, (laughs) you know, the role they can play in the movement? And what it sounds like you're saying is to understand the power that each person truly does hold. Yeah, that that is one huge part of it is that I feel like we all need to understand that there are more ways to participate in our democracy than voting. Uh, Voting is one way and we should use it. We should definitely do that. But another way that we participate in our in our democracy is by by actually holding our leaders accountable for the way that they are trying to wield the positions that we've elected them to. And one of those ways is understanding our power, our collective power, and being willing to use it. And there are people who will organize us, <laughs> you know, right. the people who are like doing all the deep work of understanding what the, con- like have a profound sense of what the conflict situation is and can help us to identify what powers we have and how they can be wielded, all that kind of stuff. But they're, they're a small part of the movement and they help it. They they have an integral part, but the real uh, power in a nonviolent movement is about participation. You need a mm. lot of people to participate. Yeah. As many people as, you know, as possible. I mean, actually, actually there, there are numbers that say that there are varying numbers, but all of the numbers are less than 10%. But still 10% of America or three and a half percent or 7% of America still a lot of people. (laughs) And that is the thing. And so we need, we need a lot of people to participate. And for that to happen, people have to understand our power collectively. Mm -hmm. And they have to understand that everyone, like we don't need like 3 million Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, actually we do ourselves a disservice by telling the story of how America has changed by making it about great individuals. Because it's not the great individuals that changed America single-handedly. Alongside Dr. King, there was Bay Rustin and Ella Baker and Diane Nash and Stokely Carmichael and Fannie Lou Hamer and all of these other people. And those are also famous or semi-famous names. Alongside those people, there were thousands of people, literally thousands of people meeting every night in Birmingham at church to discuss how they would oppose and challenge Jim Crow. And without those thousands of people who were willing to go and sit in in the cafeteria and willing to face the police dogs and the fire hoses and stuff like that. We wouldn't have the America that we have today. That could not have been accomplished by Martin Luther King Jr. by himself. And so we all don't have to become Martin Luther King Jr. But in order for us to have change, we do have to become part of what uh, Rebecca Solnit pointed out, that we do have to become a part of the sleeping giant that awakes you know, which is how sometimes the people are referred to is that we are sometimes referred to as the sleeping giant 
And when we awaken to our power, there's almost nothing that we can't accomplish. Yeah. So do you do you sense an awakening? And if so, where and where is that coming from? Yeah, you know, um, I'm I'm paying attention or I'm trying to pay attention. It's so hard to social movements all over the world. And, you know, we've been seeing we've been seeing uprises in Sudan and anti-racist protests in Amsterdam and France. And we're seeing children, maybe not just I shouldn't say children, but some of them are children. But youth, you know, around the world in the UK and starting to yeah. in, in Los Angeles and all this kind of stuff, rising up to speak out about climate change and climate disaster. You know, there's there's so much happening right now. and People are awakened to at least the problems and are at least trying to present some kind of resistance to it. I mean, in, in America, we've had March for Our Lives, the women's movement, the women's march. Uh, Black Lives Matter, Extinction Rebellion, you know, there's so many uh, different groups that are fighting for change right now. And that that's really exciting to me. What I hope for with, with this as we see this is that one, that people would be very strategic and that we'd see a lot more uh, fusion together of different groups working together because the participation of as many people as we can get is really helpful. So, and the other thing is that a lot of people are mobilized, you know, or able to be mobilized. We know about mm-hmm. taking to the streets right now. So when something happens, a lot of people are more than ready to make a sign and go out and, and chant and sing and all of that. And I think that's great. But we need to learn more uh, methods for nonviolent resistance because marches are good for certain things, but marches don't change societies by themselves. Like that's basically like going out and expressing our displeasure and thinking that people will, that laws will change or policies will change because of it. And so I'm, I'm hoping right. that we will learn more about nonviolence and more about strategy and more about building campaigns that actually remove power from the things that we're talking about, like we talked about earlier. And um, those are some things that I hope to see more of as, as we're seeing people become activated. But all of this energy is um, hopeful for me. Oh yeah, of course. The, the other thing is that I, I do hope that people learn more about nonviolence because people who talk about social change and revolution often, you know, say that, the revolutionary impulse in people is inevitable. It's there. One way or another, mm-hmm. people are going to fight for the kind of world that they believe ought to be. But if mm-hmm. we don't have nonviolent training and knowledge of nonviolence and things like that, then the only other option that people are going to see is going to be violence. And there are a lot of people that are getting to that place where they're saying things like, well, nothing has ever changed without violence or, you know, that violence is the most powerful force that one can use. And I can agree with the first statement that not, that things have not changed without violence, because even, you know, Dr. King was a proponent of nonviolence, but he was not mm-hmm. met nonviolently by the powers that be. You know, the powers right. that be often do respond to nonviolence with violence. And so I can't disagree with that first statement, but I can say that things have changed without the insurgents always being violent, you know? And I would hope, you know, people can learn about nonviolence so that, you know, we can be the kind of insurgents that definitely fight for the world that we want without feeling the need to shed blood, you know? And the second thing, the second statement that people assume that violence is the most powerful force in the world Practitioners of nonviolence have been challenging that notion for a long time. There's actually a, a book called A Force More Powerful. There's also a documentary by the same name, A Force More Powerful, that reviews some of the most significant nonviolent revolutions that have taken place in the past century. And if people don't know about these things, then they're going to probably just resort to being reactive and being being physical and being destructive and that's just a battle that we're much less likely to win. And I feel like on the flip side of that, you have a lot of people who will shut down mm-hmm. because if they're faced with feelings of violence inside of themselves mm-hmm. or seeing it outside, then they're going to be maybe more likely to disengage, which defeats the purpose, right? Yeah. I mean, here's here's the thing. And obviously, we I guess we didn't set out to talk about, you know, the <laughs> the the viability of violence or nonviolence, but it's an important mm-hmm. thing to notice that or to 
to note that for those who believe in armed struggle, uh, that is an activity that only certain people can participate in. Right. You have to be in a certain type of shape to be able to participate in an armed struggle. You have to know how to use weapons to participate in an armed struggle. You have to be willing to kill in order to participate in armed struggle in that way. Right. And all of those are high bars for a lot of people, you know, and so you just can't have as many people participate in (laughs) in that kind of that kind of struggle in nonviolence. Children, elderly people, disabled people, you know, all, all kinds of people can participate. And there's another advantage to that. So there's been a study that showed that most states that have endured an armed struggle, they fall into civil war after the revolution within 10 years. And nonviolent revolutions tend to bring about more stable democracies, generally speaking. And the reason why some people believe this is because in a nonviolent struggle, you're kind of teaching people how to participate in a democracy as you're pursuing the change. And Mm. usually in an armed struggle, the structure of that movement can't be democratic or is less likely to be democratic. It's usually way more hierarchical. Because it's a military operation. So, yeah, (laughs) there's that too. (laughs) It's interesting, right? Yeah, that's an entirely, that's a whole conversation. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So, then what do you see people doing right now that you wish you would see less of? Like, and what do you see people doing that you would like to see more of? What are people doing? I I don't, I hesitate to say like right or wrong, but what, Mm. what would you like to see less of and more of? Mm, That's such a great question. Okay. I don't know if I would like to see less of this, but I think I would like there to be other things that match the level. Right. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that there are a lot of people who think that expressing anti-racist values is enough. Yes. And it's just not. Expressing anti-racist values is not enough. Expressing anti-racist values is not the same as actually doing anti-racism. Um, speaking, tweeting, all of that is important. Um, but we have to do more than just show off to everyone else that we know the right things to say. So in a way, mm-hmm. I guess I would say I'd like to see less grandstanding, you know? There's a book by Jonathan Smucker, who was also a leader in Occupy Wall Street. And he talks about how activism can be sort of like fashion and people can approach activism like fashion. And we know that fashion is about expressing your identity. You know, you wear certain things because it says certain things about you and you're presenting yourself to the world. You're, you're telling people about who you are and what your tastes are like and, you know, all that kind of thing. And, People can participate in activism in that same way and often do. And I don't think that that is necessarily bad, but it has to be more than that, right? It has Mm -hmm. to be more than just expressing this is who I am. And when we don't go past that, then it kind of just becomes like this, this club and competition where everyone is trying to be more woke than the next person, you know, Mm -hmm. and the point of it is actually, here's the deal. Here's the problem with it is that the point of it is that when people are obsessed with just kind of the expressive part of doing this work, they miss the part of it that's like actually about pursuing a political goal, right? Mm, right? Yeah. And so, and so, and there's language around this in those who study, you know, social change and progress and activism and all that kind of stuff. And they, they make two large categories, one being expressive politics and the other being instrumental politics. And mm. on the instrumental the instrumental category is talking about like, what do you actually want to achieve? How do you want to go about doing it? (laughs) What methods will you choose? What targets are you aiming for? You know, and there's a lot of grandstanding, especially online, but a lot of people, a lot of us are not really pursuing change because we haven't even answered the first question, which is what kind of world do we want? What kind of world is the question? Yeah. What kind of world do we want to bring about? Yeah. That is the essential question. Yeah. Yeah. And something you say that I love is also the power of imagination in this process. Because Mm -hmm. if I think about what it is that influences me and encourages me and excites me versus what discourages me, it can be really easy sometimes to get discouraged and to lose the the creative sight and the imagination to believe Mm -hmm. that this kind of change is even possible or that I could be a part of this change. 
you know, really we need to think about and get clear about what kind of world we're trying to pursue and then actually trying to pursue it. Yeah, absolutely. So then let me ask you this. You have mentioned a few books that you recommend. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any others that you'd like to recommend for people? Oh, oh my goodness. There's so many. Um, gosh. Well, I Maybe your top three. Okay. Top three. This is... <laughs> Ooh, they man. have to join Hope and Hard Pills to get the rest. <laughs> right, right. Because I do send that stuff out and I send out some yeah. kind of, of reading lists and, you know, as soon as people sign up, I'm like, watch this video. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um. Okay. One of my favorite books to read was uh, The Radical King. It's a collection of essays from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's put together by Cornell West. What I love about this book is that most people have only heard the I Have a Dream speech or maybe they've read Letter from a Birmingham jail. But if you read this book somewhat quickly, like if you if you stick with that book and just maybe you say you're going to read one speech every day or every other day or a week or something like that, you see how King's speeches evolve and how hmm. he talks about racial justice very differently near the end than he does at the beginning. And I think that's just really interesting to see and the depth of his thought about the connection between racism and economics and all of that is it's important. And this is one of the most prominent figures in our history to talk about race and his words are misappropriated so often his message is so often missed you know it i think that that is it was it's just compelling i underlined so much in that book next to that i would say blueprint for revolution that we've talked about a couple times here yes so good Popovich. yeah it's so great and there is so much research that sergio is putting in that book like because that book is several books in one and it doesn't feel like it it's super fun to read it's funny it's engaging and it it is just this is just stuff that everybody needs to know about nonviolent struggle yeah and oh. seriously i can say that when I sat and read that book, I had this enormous smile on my face and yeah. I was so excited yeah. and I'm reading about revolution, right? But yeah. I'm like, oh, this is so amazing. Yeah. And it helps you understand too, that like changing the world is not, you know, the prerogative of great men and women. Yes. It's, it's the prerogative of all of us. All of us mm. get to participate. All of us get to do it. And I think that that book will definitely help people understand First off, it, it demystifies things. It makes it less mm -hmm. intimidating and it gives you hope. And I think that's partly why I would recommend that yeah. one. And on the subject of hope, because I think that hope is so important. And that's partly what I think we started talking about as well. That, you know, it sounds kind of hokey because it sounds like it's out of, you know, it's coming out of a Star Wars movie that, you know, we need hope for change. But it's true. You know, people will only fight a battle that they think that they can win. You know? Yes. yes. <laughs> you know, so without hope, there's no revolution. And right. but because hope is so important, I would recommend Rebecca Solnit's Hope in the Dark because uh, that book literally, you know, was an intervention. A friend of mine, actually, Paul Corrigan, who, you know, and yeah, yeah, he sent me that book because I was in I was grieving so much over what was happening in our country. And I think that Paul knew like he didn't try to take the grief away from me. He wasn't like, you shouldn't be doing this. But I think that he mm -hmm. knew that, like, if if I was only grieving, then you know, I would implode. I wouldn't make it. And he sent me this book that is about hope. And it changed the way that I think about hope. Like I used to think that it was optimism. And so either you have it or you don't. And optimism was just not an option for me because I can't just be positive about, you know, people dying and a system that is centuries old and <laughs> global and, you know, continues to uh, be resilient. You know, I just, I can't just be like, well, everything's going to be all right in the face of that. But Rebecca Solnit's book helped me to understand that hope is not, it's not unreasonable. It's not random. It's not arbitrary, but it's based in facts. It's based in our memory of the, the times that ordinary people have fought together and won before. And wow. that has given me so much ground to be a hopeful person, regardless of, you know, what I'm reading, because I genuinely do believe in our power to work together to create the society that we want to live in. And so when we talk about uh, people power and we talk about the pillars of support that support racism and how the ruler couldn't do this thing if we didn't all go along with it, those things give me hope. And that book helped me to understand that that's where hope comes from. And that's why I continue 
to read about revolutions and social movements and times that ordinary people have have changed the world because it really does feed hope and it, it helps me to keep going. And I know that, like you said earlier, that, you know, people people need to be led with hope. You know, a lot of times we are provoked by anger and that's a part of my story by grief, you know, and that's that's good to get you off your ass. It's good to get you going. Right. Um, But hope is the thing that really sustains us. And that is the thing that galvanizes the type of movement that is needed because we need a lot of people to come and everyone's not going to be angry about the injustice. Everyone's not mm. going to be moved by anger, but, mm. but hope that that's a, that's a broad based thing. And even the people who aren't initially moved by hope, some people will be moved because they want to be hopeful, right? Hope is contagious in that way. No one looks at a, no one looks at an angry mob and says, I want to be just as, just as upset as they are. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, but there is something attractive about hope. So those would be my thoughts. Wow. That's awesome. And that's a really helpful distinction for me, just processing yeah. through some of my own stuff and actual own personal grief mm. that doesn't have anything to do with the specifics of what we're talking about mm -hmm. and this idea that it's not about optimism yeah. and that mm -hmm. distinction between optimism and hope, because optimism yeah. requires that we look at the current data and feel good about the trajectory. Right. And we really can't do that. Right. Mm -hmm. So to have this idea of hope as something different from that is really powerful to me. So yeah. thank you for that. Um, yeah, I love telling yeah. people that hope is a humility about the future, you know? Oh, um, so, you know, I don't awesome. know what will happen. I don't know what will happen. I cannot tell you that everything will turn out just fine. But I also right. cannot tell you that everything will turn out badly. The future is unwritten and we mm. get to write it together. And that means that we could <laughs> maybe create something good. And that to me is where hope is. Hope is in that maybe it's in the uncertainty and a lot of a lot of that has been shaped by reading that book. So I totally recommend it. Well, thank you for joining me today and saying yes when I asked you if you'd come on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you for asking, for having me. Tell us where we can find you. Yeah, um, I'm really active on Instagram and Twitter, especially. Um, Twitter is at Andre Henry and Instagram at the Andre Henry. I try to write an article every week on my website, AndreRHenry.com which is also where people can join the mailing list, Hope and Hard Pills. People who are exploring practical insight for pursuing social change, anti-racist progress, really. Um, and we try to send that out every single week. Thank you. My pleasure. I really hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. I want to encourage you to go and follow Andre if you're not already. You can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, like he said. And please sign up for the Hope and Hard Pills newsletter. It is a great way to connect and start taking your work deeper. Every week, like Andre said, he tries to send out an email with practical tips, links to videos, articles, and so on. Now, full disclosure here, I am part of the volunteer leadership team at Hope and Hard Pills and I look forward to you joining us in this work. And as far as this podcast goes, if you're a first-time listener, welcome. If you're a returning listener, awesome. We're glad you came back. Please subscribe to us on whatever platform you like to listen on. And even better, if you would leave us a rating and a review, that would be amazing. Thanks for tuning in.